All right, this is what I want to do. I want you to get your sheet out, get a Bible out. Uh, we're going out with a bang today. If you were with us the very, very first week when we started this series on Christ in the Old Testament, we looked at the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the fall, and the so-called uh, Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. For some of you, I talked to you afterwards, that was a new concept for you. You had never thought about Christ in Genesis, much less over these last several months, Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, today, we're going to book in that. Uh, we're going to end by returning back to Genesis. And as we turn back to Genesis, we're not just going to see uh, the gospel in Genesis and Christ in Genesis. But what I want to do is I want to connect the entire Bible for you. Uh, I want you to connect Genesis to Revelation and to see how all of this is framed in a story about the first Adam, the very first man, and the last Adam who is Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning, uh, not only do I want to connect the whole Bible, but my goal is that as you leave, you would have a deeper understanding, not just here, but here, about what Jesus Christ has done for you. Uh, some of you guys know my story. I'm a huge science nerd, less so now than I was when I was younger. My dad is a physician. Uh, my sister, my little sister, is a physician. When I uh, went through high school, my favorite subject was biology. Uh, I voluntarily signed up for a class where we actually had an extra period of biology that started at 7 a.m. It was two hours of biology in high school every day, uh, and I loved it. Um, I went to doctor camp. <laughs> no, you're supposed to laugh at that because it's ridiculous. <laughs> But when I was a junior in high school, I went to doctor camp, and I scrubbed in and learned what it meant to be a doctor, and I just, that's what I saw myself doing, so I went to A&M. Uh, I began my first uh, major at A&M wasn't just biology, it was molecular and cellular biology. Um, I, I was pre-med all the way until the Lord grabbed my heart, and, you know, here I am. I'm not, I'm not a doctor anymore, right? I, that's not a, the Lord changed my path, but my love for science kind of never uh, went away. And so one of the big questions that if you know anything about science is, you, you know, you wrestle with, well, where does science and faith, how, how do those things coalesce? Uh, it seems like they're at odds so often. And especially when it comes to the book of Genesis, right, creation. And it seems at times that, that how do those two things intersect? And maybe you are like me, or maybe you've had questions too. And we're not going to get into, there's so much we could talk about there. But one of the questions at the, at the very front of that debate is Adam. This man who God created, that the Bible teaches us all men have come from. And the question is, is was Adam a historical person? Right? When we read about God creating Adam and breathing uh, breath and life into his nostrils and making him out of the dust and that all of humanity has come from this first man, Adam, are we to think of that as a real event or is that just kind of myth, some just kind of idea that we can kind of see as an example? And what I want to do for you this morning is I want to show you why it matters that Adam was a real person. And what might surprise you is that it's important that you believe this not because of Genesis, but because of the book of Romans. 
Paul, the apostle, is going to teach us about Jesus. He's going to teach us about the gospel. He's going to teach us about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that makes us new by beginning with Adam. And as he looks at Adam, this real historical person, he's going to connect the dots between this first Adam and how all of us are broken and in need of a Savior because of him. And he's going to connect a parallel between the first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and how God has sent us a new Adam to be a new representative, to be a new inheritance for us, that we would not now inherit sin and death, but that we would be given life and righteousness. And so this morning, I want to do this very briefly in a few ways. I want to begin with this. Um, we think about sin. I used to meet with a man um, weekly, and, and I've met with many men since, since him, but he was the first that asked me a question. We had been meeting at this point, I would say, for six months. He was a man who believed in Jesus. Um, he had a, an incredible conversion story. Um, he left a, a life of uh, incredible sexual brokenness, a life of uh, drug use, a life of uh, true bondage. And yet he looked at me and he asked me this question one day. He said, Paul, I hate that Jesus had to die. I hate it. Why did he have to die for me? Why did he have to pay for my mistakes? I'm the one who made the mistakes. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't have to do that. This is a man who believed in the death, he believed in forgiveness, and yet he found himself struggling, struggling with the death of Christ for him. And as we begin to talk over the next several months, I began to realize the reason why he struggled with Christ, the reason why he struggled with the gospel, the reason why he struggled with forgiveness and grace is because deep down he struggled with sin. And when I, when I say that, not struggled with sin like you and I struggle with sin, like we're, we continue to sin, we don't know why. No, he struggled with the concept. In his mind, he felt like, yes, I'm guilty. But he also felt like he could, he could make up for it, that he could atone for his wrongs, that he could make amends. He was a recovering alcoholic. So the idea of making amends was deep in his thinking, going through those steps. And so when he asked, why did Jesus have to die? What he was really asking is, why can't I be the one to make up for what I have done? That question has been a question as long as there have been people. You can go back to the very early, uh, earliest days of the church, and there was a man named Pelagius. I don't want to get deeply into church history <laughs> and have both science and a church history lesson in our last week. Man, we've really taken a... <laughs> but Pelagius is an important figure in the church because what he argued is that when Adam died, when Adam, or when Adam sinned and death entered the world, that what Adam did is he made us a bad example. He became the example of what not to do. And ever since then, man has been following a bad example in Adam. Now, here's the problem with that. If Adam is just a bad example, 
then what does that make Jesus Christ? A good example. And suddenly we find ourselves caught in a moral dilemma between doing bad or doing good. And that is not the gospel. So this morning we're going to look at Adam and who he was. But as we see what Adam did in the fall and how that has affected us, in the end what we want to see is that God has sent us the last Adam, Jesus Christ, to free us. In the end, we're going to answer my friend's question, why Jesus had to die. So the first thing I want to talk about is this. I want to talk about Adam's sin. On your sheet, you have Genesis 2. We're going to look at this very quickly. We looked at this at the very beginning, if you remember, week one of our study. But again, just to remind us, Genesis 2, verse 7 We're told this, that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There is so much we could talk about there, but we don't have time. The point is this, that God created Adam. He created Adam differently than he created anyone else. Adam was made in his image, and he breathed life. That word, pneuma, In the Greek, I mean, here the idea of being breathed, the breath of God, his very spirit given to Adam, a soul. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here's Adam He is in the garden. He's been given the garden to steward. And in this garden, we have the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam was commanded to work the garden, to keep the garden, to steward the garden, recognizing he had been entrusted, endowed by his creator to be a steward. And he was given a command. You can eat of any tree, but of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it, or else what? You will die. You will die. And if you've been around church at all in your life, you know where the story goes. You know that the serpent comes. The serpent fundamentally questions the authority of God, questions his kingship, says, did God really say that? Makes what God said and his promise into a lie. He says, did God really say that? You're not going to die. You can do that. It's going to be fine. Notice he doesn't say... um, Look, uh, God didn't say you're not supposed to eat of it. And he says, look, I know that's what God said, but you're not going to die. And so Adam and Eve take the fruit of the tree, and we call this the fall. It's the moment where sin enters the world. But not just sin. Remember what was told to Adam. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's going to come? Death. Did did Adam die right then in that moment? No. It's a different kind of death. A death that comes from decay, 
and brokenness and disease. So when sin enters the world, death comes with it. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. It's the punishment. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But as we think about death, it wasn't an instant death. Brothers, what I want you to wrestle with is every pain, every brokenness, every disease, every cancer, all of it comes from the fall. The decay, the brokenness that we see in the world, that we see in our own hearts, our depravity, all of this comes from the fall. The question is, why? And how? How is it that this moment, the moment where Adam and Eve sin in a garden, how has that had ramifications as wide and as deep and as destructive as it's been? I want you to look now at Romans chapter 5. Paul is looking back on this moment, looking back at the fall in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Okay, we'll stop there. Who is the one man that Paul is talking about? Adam. So he's saying, look, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, what's sin? Well, what was sin for Adam? Fundamentally, it was disobedience. And disobedience is sometimes, I think, not a strong enough word. It should be strong enough, but because we have so many of us, such a broken understanding of fatherhood and sonship, the idea of disobedience seems like, well, that's what my kids do every day. (laughs) Listen, I mean, disobedience is... It's not a strong enough word, I think. Treason. Utter rebellion. This is the creator of the universe. The the one who sits on the throne. The king of kings and lord of lords. The one who has decided everything. And he has commanded Adam to do one thing. And Adam directly goes against his authority. That is rebellion. That is treason. That's what sin is. And so fundamentally, every sin that we commit, whether it's lust or greed or apathy, all of it fundamentally is committing treason. It's it's calling the authority of God into question. It's crowning ourselves king and saying, I'm not going to follow his will, I'm going to follow my own. So here's Paul saying, just as this sin this treason, this rebellion entered the world through one man and death through sin, right? Remember, Adam, if you're going to eat of this tree, you will die. In other words, Adam, if you commit treason, the penalty will be death. We, 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 God is a God of justice. The wages of sin are death because they're that grievous, Death came through sin, and then notice what he says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Did you catch Paul's line of thought? One man sinned, death came through that one man's sin, but now death has spread to all men because all sinned. The question I want you to wrestle with this morning is how does that work? 
How is it that you and I are sinful today because Adam sinned in the garden thousands of years ago? How do those two things connect? Because what I want you to see, maybe what you, you, you might not know, is that this word sinned here at the end of verse 12, it's a singular past tense word that is finite. In other words, it's not progressive. It's not saying, no, we, we've been sinning all along ever since. No, it's saying all sinned, finite moment. In other words, what Paul is saying is, this one man sinned in the garden. But what you and I have to wrestle with today is that we are so connected to Adam that it is as if every one of us were in the garden with him. We are so connected to him. He being our first parent. He being part of our lineage, our heritage. We are so connected to this Adam that as if all of us sinned, finite, past tense, with him in the garden. The theological word for that, I debated whether to use this word with you. I don't want you to begin to glaze over. It's early. But I think it's important for you to know this word. And the word is imputation. Imputation. It's a word that I think is incredibly important for Christians to understand. The classic text for imputation comes from Genesis 15, another Old Testament text. You can just listen. You don't have to turn there. We actually looked at this a few weeks ago. It's a story of Abraham. And you remember Abraham, we are told in Genesis 15, believed God, and that through his believing God, not just believing in God, but believing God, it says that it was counted to him as righteousness. When it says it, it was counted to him, that's imputation. The word imputation just simply means it was credited to. It was counted to him. The idea that now Abraham is suddenly seen as righteous because of faith. And if you were with us when we talked about Abraham, feels like years ago now, but it's just a few weeks ago. If you were with us that day, you know that this is the foundation for salvation through faith in Christ alone. That through faith, we are seen as righteous. Now, what you might not realize is that when the Bible uses the understanding of imputation, being counted as, it's not just righteousness, but the Bible also talks about sin. I want you to look with me. Again, Romans 5. Romans 5. Look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. That's important. This brokenness came from the fall. It was there. It was always there since Adam and Eve sinned. But sin is not counted where there is no law. This word counted is the same exact word. The idea of being um, imputed, the idea of being credited. And as the law came, suddenly we begin to be, it was revealed. This is what sin is. The law being a mirror to us, revealing just how broken, how depraved, how needy we really are. The question is this, how deep is sin in us? If you think that Adam in the fall was just a bad example, then it's not very deep. And deep down, fundamentally, you think you have the ability to choose differently. 
Now, if you've grown up in church, my guess is you probably don't believe that here. You probably don't believe that Adam was just a bad example or that you have the ability to clean yourself up. But the problem for you and me this morning is we're going to be honest, even though we don't believe that here, here, that's the way we live every day. And in order to understand what Jesus has truly done for us, we have to see what Adam has done in us. That sin is deep in us. It's deep in us because when Adam sinned, his sin was imputed to us. It was counted to us. So much so that Paul says that as if we were with Adam in the garden, choosing to disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ourselves. Now, as Americans, this idea that we would be that connected to another man who we've never met does not make any sense. We are ruggedly individualistic. But in the ancient Near East, the idea of being connected corporately made all the sense in the world. They understood themselves to be together as human beings. But for us now, thousands and thousands of years later, in the West, we don't like that. We, we are individuals. So the closest maybe we could get to understanding this would be the American government, right? Our federal government. It's a representative form of government that we elect representatives to be our, um, to stand in our place. They are our federal representatives. But it begins to break down because we elect them. And I don't think any of us voted for Adam, right? And deep down behind that is this deep thought. I know it's in you because it's in me that says, you know what, if I was there, I would have done it better than him. I would have listened. I would have obeyed. And here's the point. You know that's not true. You would have done the exact same thing. Why? Because sin is deep down in you. It's deep down in me. And if your problem is that deep and that destructive, then there's only one solution. And it's not going to be looking at Jesus as your good example. It's not going to be choosing differently or doing it better than Adam would have done. No, we need a savior. We need someone who has the ability and the power to clean us and redeem us from the inside out. And that's where Paul goes next. Not just Adam's sin, but the second thing I want to look at is Christ's righteousness. Verse 15, notice what Paul says. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's a lot of words to essentially say one thing. Here's this one man, Adam, and through Adam, this one man has come sin. But God has given us one man, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ has come life and come righteousness. Look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, this man is different. Through that one man, Adam, came sin. 
And trespass after trespass after trespass. But through this one man, Jesus Christ, has come justification once and for all. Freedom from every sin. Freedom over death itself. Verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, what's Paul saying? He's saying, look, because of this one man, Adam, all of humanity is broken and sinful. And you don't have to read Paul to know that. You look at the world, look at your own heart, and recognize that there is brokenness there. There is sin there. And so Paul is saying, look, just as sin came through this one man, Adam, the good news of the gospel is this, is that life has come from one man, Jesus Christ. And freedom from that sin has come from his power and his victory. And here's what you have to understand, brothers. What Paul is saying is in the same way that the sin of Adam is now your sin, the righteousness of Christ, his holiness, his victory, and his power is now your righteousness and your holiness and your power. And that's the disconnect. That's the part I think that we have such a hard time understanding. I think so often as Christians, we say, look, I get that Jesus died. I get that he rose again. That's an, I mean, that's hard enough to believe. And I get that he did that for my sin. But I don't want you to stop there, brothers. I want you to recognize that what Paul is saying is that now the victory that Jesus Christ had over sin and death on the cross, His resurrection is now your resurrection. In the same way that Adam's sin is your sin, Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. Christ's power is now your power. His holiness is now your holiness. His righteousness has been counted to you as your righteousness, as if it were your own. This is the power of the gospel. It's the freedom of the gospel. Paul says it another way, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. A great way to sum this up. You can turn there, you can just listen. This is a great verse to memorize. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In theological terms, we call this double double imputation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. In other words, our sin was imputed to Jesus on the cross. It was given to him. And when he died for our sin, as if he was carrying literally our sin, and he died for it. But it doesn't just stop there. I think so often as Christians we stop there. We say, okay, he died for my sin. But no, he wrote, Paul doesn't stop there. It's not just that our sin was given to him, but so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't just celebrate the cross, we celebrate the resurrection. When Christ rose again, that resurrection became ours. So much so that Paul is saying that we are now, as Christians, 
the righteousness of God. Not because we're righteous, because He is. It's been given to us. You are different now. You have been made holy. It's the last thing, and this is where we're going to end. We'll go to our tables. Verse 18, Romans 5. I'll read this to you. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Do you hear that, brothers? It's good news. This one trespass in the fall in Adam led to condemnation. But in the same way, this one man, Jesus Christ, his obedience, obedience to the point of death, death on a cross, has now made us righteous. In Adam, we die. In Christ, we live. He is the last Adam, the true Adam, the greater Adam, the one who had the ability to be obedient and through his obedience, you and, I have, you and I have now been given the power of obedience. We have been resurrected. We've been given the power of his Holy Spirit. The same spirit that rose him from the dead now dwells in you and in me. And sending Jesus Christ as the last Adam, God has reversed every effect of the fall. And not only has he paid for our sin. But death no longer has a sting. And one day there's going to be no crying, nor mourning, nor pain anymore because he is making all things new. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Lord, these themes are high and lofty, and yet we feel their effects every single day. And as we struggle in our own depravity, or we struggle with the effects of that depravity and sickness and disease, as every one of us in the room faces one common reality that one day we will die, we're longing for an explanation. And in the scriptures, you have, you've shown us where all this comes from. And yet, as we long for an explanation, we're longing for rescue. And in the scriptures, you've given us that as well. So, Lord, I pray for every one of us that as we leave, we would leave with a deeper understanding of what you have done and giving us your son as the last Adam to be our representative, to die in our place, but not just die in our place, to rise in our place so that we could be counted as righteous. Lord, we thank you that we are hidden in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would work against the schemes of the first Adam in us to fall, and Lord, by the power of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, that we would be made new. And we ask this in his name. Amen.